What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring. And today we have, it's going to be not boring, first of all, because we have some Big Ten rivals going at it, right? Me representing Iowa, Jessica representing Michigan. Might have to throw down in the middle of the episode. We don't know what's going to happen. But we have uh, Coach Jessica Burke. And Jessica, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Why don't you provide a quick little background, little bio. I already uh, teased out the Michigan and you have Penn State, but um, introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely a Big Ten gal through and through. Um, Did my undergrad at Indiana, went to Michigan for grad school, kind of started my collegiate experience there. I was in the private sector for a little bit, working with um, youth high school athletes, things like that. Um, so, you know, kind of went back to the private sector as COVID happened because collegiate really was not a thing, um, (laughs) for a lot of people and, uh, then spent about a little under a year at Purdue and then found myself at Penn State for about a year and a half. And now, um, back kind of in the private sector, taking a break from collegiate, um, and just running my business and training, which is the things that I love to do. So... Yeah, you are all over the uh, the Big Ten. You're like, yeah. you're almost like the Big Ten now. Just the the number of expansion that it's doing, right? Like you're you're. I mean, all you would have to do go to the, the West Coast, and you could just be. Actually, you start working in Maryland or Rutgers. You're you would just have. I know I'm like in proximity now, so I don't know. I might check more off my. We never know. So. You never know. Um, yeah. you know, I reading your your stuff on LinkedIn. Saw that you were in the private sector before, you're in the private sector now. Um, one of the questions that I had was what made you get out? What made you, you know, do what you're doing now to, to do the private sector stuff? Um, I definitely think it was a combination of factors and just kind of culmination of realizing that I was not necessarily living a lifestyle that I wanted to live or that was sustainable, right? Um, so, you know, we talk about it a lot, but collegiate is super demanding in terms of hours. Um, and even at a lot of the bigger schools, you, you have multiple sport responsibilities. So you're pretty much in season, you know, um, a lot of the year you're traveling, you're doing things. Um, and so on top of the fact that I didn't, you know, have enough time to work out myself or run my business or things like that. Um, I definitely, and I think this is no secret was not getting compensated. Like this was, you know, the only thing that I was supposed to be doing. Right. And I think that's a very common, um, you know, opinion of, of coaches in collegiate strength and conditioning is, is the work in versus the um, money out. And I don't think any of us do the job for the money necessarily, um, but especially, you know, it's not cheap to live in a college town. Um, and when you're kind of unable to, to take care of yourself and do things that you want to do, uh, you kind of start to, to reevaluate what, what you want to do. So. Yeah. And I mean, Brett Bartholomew has been the one to say that before, like, how often people will be like, oh, well, if you're really in this just for, you know, not the money, you do this for me for free. And it's like, nobody says that when you go to a restaurant, nobody says that when you go to other professions, why do people feel that about strength and conditioning coaches? Well, and straight up, I mean, we all did it for free for long enough anyways. We actually have done it for free, right? So it's like, I'm, you know, paying for my life now. And all the life that I had to live while I was working for people for free. So, um, yeah, I think there's kind of a miss there's, um, the expectations don't, don't meet the reality in terms of that. So, um, I definitely was like, Hey, like I actually want to make some money. Like I'm passionate about what I do. I'm a professional in this field. Um, and I'm going to earn a few dollars, uh, for the next couple of years and then we'll see where I end up, you know? What sports did you have when you were either at, you know, any of the Big Ten schools that you had? Were you a niched, you know, whatever, or what was what were the sports that you worked with? Um, so at Penn State, I worked with women's lacrosse, which um, is the sport that I played, the sport I um, coached high school women's lacrosse for like nine seasons prior to that. Um, so really big into lacrosse. That was a really great experience for me. Um, but also at Penn state, I had women's gymnastics, which was my first, uh, gymnastics experience. Um, and I found that to be something that I really enjoyed. Um, I really loved the sport and then I had men's golf as well. Um, which I really liked. I liked the athletes. Um, they were a cool group of guys and, and we got along really well and they did some really quality work. Um, so in terms of, you know, being like having a niche and, you know, sticking to that one sport, 
one of my favorite things about the profession is just kind of the puzzle that you get when you get to mm-hmm. every new sport, right? New group of kids, new demands, new, um, you know, list of injuries, new, um, you know, new way to attack um, the sport in the season. So for me, I loved working with lacrosse because it was kind of like a full circle moment of, hey, I do this. I know this. <laughs> um, but I love all sports, so. What position did you play? Um, defense primarily, and then some midfield. So, did you find like so? I asked because I played football and like you know I worked in football and that was kind of you know my niche whatever. Yeah. Um, but back when I played, you know I, I was I was that guy that kind of was friends with everybody, but I still had that like oh you know don't touch my quarterback. So like I didn't only relate with the skill guys, but I, or with the linemen I could like relate with the skill guys. Did that happen? You know, working in the other sports, like oh you know you're an offensive player, like I don't like you very much. You know when you're not that you don't like them. You know what I'm trying to say. No, I definitely know. I think um, I think sometimes the one thing that I found is that, especially working with women's sports lately, the competitive edge that I felt when I was an athlete and I was practicing is not as intense, right? Um, like, I felt like we were just, like, too maybe nice to each other at practice these days, right? And I couldn't oh. relate because, like, I lived with my teammates, but, like, when we went to practice, it was like, <laughs> fuck, fuck you, you <laughs> and um, like, I'm going to score on you all day. Like, you know, so, so I, like, couldn't relate a little bit. I'm like, where is that fire? Like, I know these are your friends, but, like, you should want to dunk on them in the middle of practice. Like, that's what it's all about. Um, so I definitely felt that uh, that – you know, some teams are more competitive than others, right? And then, you know, surprisingly, you had, like, gymnastics at Penn State, and some of them, when they would just, like, get into, like, they were locked in all the time, ready to attack. So it's cool. It's different watching those different dynamics. What would be your piece of advice for any of the strength coaches that are still in it now that you're out? Because, you know, having gymnastics right around Christmas time, that ain't easy. And then, you know, lacrosse is coming back, like – What's your piece of advice to those coaches on how to be able to survive that winter period of time? Because that doesn't get talked about a lot for Olympic coaches. Yeah, no, I think um, for me, it was it was really hard and it was really stark. That was like one of the big things that I noticed. And, you know, I traveled a few times with gymnastics, but I wasn't even full travel. Um, but, you know, in the fall, you have your off-season lacrosse stuff. So you're traveling for fall ball. You have games at home. Like, you don't have those weekends. Then you get into the holidays. You have, you know, the gymnastics, things like that. Um, even if you're not traveling, you, you have to be back cause you have to train them, right. You know, okay. you don't, you don't get your break and then you go right into lacrosse season. It's right there. So I definitely found myself, um, in the middle of that. And I was lucky. I had, um, the gymnastics coach at Penn state was fantastic. And, and she was really, um, flexible with me in terms of wanting me to be able to spend time with my family over the holidays. But you know, that's not always the case. So, um, I mean, my advice would be to set, boundaries and and stick to them because I will say that any inch that you you give some people in this industry they will take 750 miles um you know so if you're kind of ambiguous you're like well I guess I could come back on like the 26th the 27th like be like I'm not coming back till New Year's I'll write you something you could do it in the gym you could do it outside you could do it in the pool like I you know I mean but there there has to be some uh you, you have to stand up for the fact that like you want to live your life as a person. There cannot be this, we can, as a profession cannot meet the expectation that we are just the guys that are always in the gym or else this profession is going to be, hey, they're always in the gym, right? Does that make sense? 100%. And like you said, if you leave it wishy-washy, you'll be like, all right, perfect, 9 o'clock on the 26th, we'll have the whole team in for an optional lift. You're there and not a fucking soul is there. Exactly, yeah. Um, how does that get better then? for people in the director roles? Like, what do they need to do? How do they make it better for everybody else below? And again, I'm asking you just because you're out of it too, and I want to see how you see that lens. Um, yeah, I think, and I, I don't have enough good things to say about my department at Penn State because I really enjoyed my director and I felt really supported and I, I loved it, right? Um, so this is not a reflection of anything anything there, but I think that you know, the messaging that's coming from the top down to the strength coaches. So like, hey, like, 
We want you to have work-life balance. We want you to have a life. We want you, you know, there's two sides of that coin. And that needs to be echoed from the directors, from the administration to the sport coaches as well, right? Mm -hmm. If that's going to be a priority, everybody needs to articulate that it's a priority. So, um, you know, it can't just be like us sitting in a department being like, yeah, we have great work-life balance, like sick. (laughs) And then our sport coaches being like, what the fuck are you talking? Like, you need to be here. Um, you know, there needs to be kind of that back channel. Um, hey, like maybe the strength coaches don't need to be here on Christmas Eve. You know, things that, these wild ideas, right? Um, but just like ways that we can, you know, in little ways, like save ourselves for the long term. Because I think people find that it's not sustainable, right? I think one of the things any of our listeners right now should remember is hearing you talk about that made me think about, you know, anybody that I was working with at Towson where, yeah, I had football, but I only had the throwers in addition. But somebody like, you know, you that had multiple Olympic teams or, you know, some of my colleagues where it's like, okay, it, if you had gymnastics and swim and dive, you know, one of my assistants had or had softball, cross country and tennis. Well, you know, if you're working with me with football and then, okay, softball is off on Monday, but they're in on the weekends and football is off on the week. Like that sport coach is only like, well, we're off on Monday. Like you can, it's like, no, like I still have to be in the weight room, like covering things. And like, if you let me get away, I'm actually going to do better for you. Yeah. And I think that was kind of some of the problem that I had. And again, not with everybody, like I've had great sport coaches and I've had sport coaches that have been difficult. It has been difficult to get them to understand like my day to day, right? So exactly what you said, like, oh, you know, you have, like we have Monday off. I'm like, well, I'm here Monday at 5.15 a.m. Um, so that doesn't sound like I have Monday off, you know? And just kind of reminding them, like you are a third of what I do. And you see me 40 hours a week. So imagine what my week actually looks like, you know? No, 100%. Um, You know, transitioning a little bit out of, you know, just in the weeds with it as this whole word high performance continues to evolve. What did that look like to you? And, And how do you see the field evolving with, you know, these newer roles where it's ATC, strength and conditioning coaches, now mental performance coaches, all of them coming together. Is this getting better or worse for sport coaches where are they eventually going to push back and be like, I have no more control over my team? I love the way that you asked that question. Um, I think that it has the potential to be better for the athlete. But I also think that, you know, kind of like what you said, are the sport coaches going to push back and realize that they don't have as much control in In my opinion, you know, when it comes to if we want to fill our athletic department with subject matter experts, we need to let them be subject matter experts. So you can't have a sport. Are they? Are they actually? (laughs) Well, the thing is, is like, you know, if you have a dietitian, you can't have a sport coach talking to like their team about like nutritional things that they like believe and their philosophy, because unless you're a dietitian, you shouldn't have a philosophy on nutrition to be quite frank, you know, Um, or you can have it in the comfort of your own home and share it with your friends and family. (laughs) No, that's good. But like, you know what I mean? So it's, you know, these athletic departments that are, um, and like, this is, like I said, I've worked in a lot of great places and this is not yeah. anything in particular. This is an observation of the field is you have these athletic departments. And I notice it, especially with athletic trainers who I think are literally the most overqualified, underpaid, overworked, like the athletic trainer is the Holy grail of collegiate athletics. We treat them like shit. We pay them like shit and they are argued with so frequently um, by sport coaches and who, none of whom have any medical (laughs) credentials whatsoever. So my kind of, you know, I know I I got into it there. I feel very strongly about like the importance of athletic training and good ones. Right. And so I think this, the surrounding these kids with all these subject matter experts is amazing. Right. I've worked with so many really talented and qualified professionals who are great at their jobs. But there is this, they're getting worn down by these sport coaches who have the upper hand always because Mm. they are the sport coach. And so I think in order for this model to work, right, for it to be a high performance model, for it not to be, okay, well, everybody gets together and then they take 
all of their expertise, which is, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years combined, bring it to the sport coach. And the sport coach says, well, nah, because when I was in college, we didn't do it that way. So scratch that. You yeah, know? For, yeah I, I, I actually, so before I get onto that, talk, you know, your ATC comment, that hit to, close to home because shout out to Kyle Cherry, my athletic trainer when I was here or when I was there at Towson. He was unbelievable. We had a great relationship. Um, and I always used to tell him it was me, the head of athletic training, um, academics, and then director of football operations, right? It was the four of us who had the most touch points with the whole team outside the head coach. And I was like, I have the easiest job out of y'all. Like ops, if there's anything football wise that somebody doesn't know what to do, they're fucking coming to you. Number two worst was academics. Cause guess what? The kids really don't want to do academics and then number three was the whole medical thing of like you got to tell a sport coach his kid can't play shit and then the kids too will sometimes be like oh you know so-and-so is just holding me out it's like no actually you are holding you out um so shout out to that but the high performance stuff what do you i have a theory that coaches should not be ceos of their own team they're actually a franchisee under the ad who is really under the president agree disagree yeah i mean i think if you're going to let it if you're going to have an athletic department it needs to function as an athletic department and not a um you know uh monarchy in which the sport coach can choose you know how to go about everything um yeah i i completely agree with that because i think you're wasting expertise i think you're um you know, you're not letting the professionals be professionals, letting the experts be experts. So I, I completely agree with that. I don't think it should be that CEO model, what I say goes, and then you guys fill in the gaps. <clears throat> How do you handle that, in your opinion, with these schools that, like you said, they have their, their football coaches are making, you know, tons of monies and they're driving all these decisions. How do you balance that with the fact, like, okay, they're bringing in the money, but it's like, is that ultimate, like, that's not what college athletics is supposed to be about. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, so I am, and, and part of the driving force of my decision uh, to step out for a little bit was that I entered collegiate athletics because I it's about the kid, right? I want to give the kid the best experience. I want to keep them the healthiest. I want to give them the best chance for you know, success. And I find that when you break it down to that level and when you talk to people in collegiate athletics, most of them, you know, believe, okay, like we are, we're here for the kid, right? Um, but it becomes very much not about that. And like you said, very much about the money and that becomes the thing that's driving the decisions. And I understand it, right? Athletics is a for-profit business. I completely understand it. Um, but when you, you have that and you have, like you said, these coaches getting paid these crazy, you know, these crazy salaries. I mean, look at the differential between what a football strength coach gets paid um, right. And, you know, for people who don't know, some of these guys are making six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. Um, and an Olympic strength coach at a mid-major might make, you know, a twenty five thousand dollar stipend um, might make thirty thousand um, dollars. So you ask yourself, like you were saying, there's that huge differential. And yet you expect everybody to operate at this this just high, high standard. Right. <clears throat> for you, when you were in it, how did you handle, you, you know, your athletes? Like you said, you're in it for them and you're in it to serve them. How did you do it? Because looking at what their travel schedule is like, how are you able to actually best program for them? Because, you know, shout out to you and anybody else doing it, because that is just unbelievably difficult when you think about travel schedules. Um, I think you question yourself a lot. I think you, <laughs> I, I think it's true, right? You, because you know inherently like if you know the science you understand it you know that you know you could do everything correctly um and things are still going to happen kids are still going to get hurt that's the nature of sport um but you sit there and you second guess yourself a lot and you say are we doing too much are we doing too little are we recovering enough should i be more involved in the recovery should i be less involved would it be better if we let them sleep would it be better if they came in and did you know a regenerative session um, so I have no great strategic answer for that other than you, you see what works, but you question yourself a lot, right? Um, because there's always that thought in your mind that like, maybe you made the wrong choice, right? You're like, maybe they could have slept for four more hours and maybe that's on me, right? Um, and then you have the kids bitching cause they don't want to get out of bed, you know, things like that, right? Exactly. 
Um, and, you know, if you try to explain to a college kid that they have to wake up at nine on a weekend to come in for a regen because it's better for them and you care about them, they don't give a shit uh, about that. You yeah, know? in one ear, out the other. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think it's a lot of, like, thinking about your decisions 50 times before and after you make them, which is super counterproductive, I think. So, you know. Well, you know, changing subjects again, now you're out of it and now you're in the private sector. Um you know, you talked about it a little bit, but kind of go in depth because you're not the only person that's doing that. You're not the only person getting out and, and venturing down this path. So, you know, dive dive down a little bit more about why that's so important to you and why you, why you did make the move. Um, you know, obviously I made the move because I wanted a different type of lifestyle. I wanted, um, you know, more time with my family, more time with my friends. Like on a personal note, you know, a lot of I'm 30, so a lot of my close friends are, like, having kids and things like that. And those are things that I want to share with them. And I'm tired of, you know, sending a gift to the baby shower and not going. Or sending a gift to the wedding and not going. You know what I mean? And my friends have been super supportive of that. But I feel like now it's just like, oh, Jess doesn't fucking come to these things. Like, she can't. Don't even invite her. She's not even going to go. Why waste the invite? come to this shit. Um, (laughs) So, you know, um, so it's. You know, stuff like that, that was kind of weighing on me a little bit, but also... um... Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button. It helps us out and it helps you be notified when we have new content get released. So again, please hit that like and subscribe button if you enjoy this content. And with that, let's get back to the show. The desire to to kind of remove myself from uh, that environment and see the bigger picture a little bit. I think that... A lot of people get in a collegiate and they sit there for 20 years, right? And I didn't want to be there in 20 years and be like, oh my God, did I just do the same shit for 20 years? You know, did I work with the same teams? Did I talk to the same people? Did I write the same programs? Because there's only so many freaking exercises out there. Um, You know, and so I kind of wanted to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and, and figure out, you know, within this space, within... Um, performance and health and wellness and you know what I really wanted to do long term right and what was going to be sustainable for the life that I wanted to live so you know our listeners out there might be listening and they're like okay yeah that sounds good but I mean that's terrifying to make that leap from okay college and and you know like you said okay at the very least I might be doing it but you know what's happening you know, to go into that world of the unknown, um, how did you kind of prepare that? Because you talked about having your own business. Um, how long had you been in business? What were kind of some of the things that you learned along the way? Yeah, I mean, I was um, I was really fortunate to several years back have kind of started, um, you know, essentially from a need standpoint, started taking clients online and programming for clients online and things like that. And, you know, I think 2015, 2016, 2017, it was me, you know, making programs for friends and sending out Excel spreadsheets and you're, you were uh, really adapted. Good for you. Like, wait, like that's impressive. I tr- I did a lot of stupid shit. I could have made a lot more money than I did. I'm going to tell you that up front right now. Like this, you know, um, but from a need perspective, right? Because I mean, I was in, I was in grad school at Michigan I was interning 35 hours a week. I was like a breakfast waitress on the weekend and I still had like $7, right? So I was like, I need to do something. Um, And I had, you know, put all my eggs in this like strength and conditioning basket. And I'm like, I'm going to sell online shit. So, you know, first you start out, you're selling it for no money, pretty much, you know, you start making some money. And so I've been fortunate enough to have the access and the platform to do something like that for several years. It's only been the last couple of years that I've really kind of aggressively monetized it and got into that. Um, But again, it was a lot of years of kind of undercharging, not knowing my value, figuring things out, figuring out what people outside of athletics wanted, um, because it's a very different market in terms of um, what they want, you know, what the results they want to see, but also what um, type of marketing speaks to them. Um, and how can I, you know, talk to my ideal client and things like that. Um, but the last several years has really just been an experiment of me balancing this with, um, collegiate and then eventually this becoming my primary source of income when I was at Purdue, continuing to grow while I was at Penn state. And then, you know, me being fortunate enough to have the ability to say, Hey, like I can take a break right now. So. No, that's awesome. And so what kind of is your, you know, target avatar audience for right now with your um, public tra- or 
excuse me, your personal training. I saw on the website it was, you know, essentially like, hey, only enter here if you want to actually be a badass, right? Like, yeah. No, absolutely. So um, I think my, I, I'll start by saying I have a lot of different clients, right? My, my clients vary um, pretty widely in terms of lifting experience, things like that. Um, I have, I would say my most frequent client and the person that I speak to the hardest is people who are a little bit misinformed just based off of everything we've consumed for the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, right? I mean, it's shit um all the shit and so kind of um breaking down some of that that diet culture stuff um putting weightlifting um you know making it less intimidating helping especially women understand that um that is the way that they're going to get the body that most of them want you know most of them want this toned athletic appearance and you know, whether it's group workout classes or Pilates or bar, you know, they're seeing things on the internet about how they can get there. And so kind of breaking down that barrier and being like, Hey, like, you know, if you lift, you're going to look better, you're going to feel better. Like it, it's just, you're telling me what you want. I'm telling you how to get there. You can either believe me or not believe me. Um, you know, so kind of breaking down that intimidation and then also undoing, like I said, years of just diet culture bullshit, especially aimed at women. Um, the last 20 years has been really predatory in terms of like, you need to be thin, um, oh. you know, and period. Um, so, and I think that's just a crock of shit and, uh, I'm here to help get rid of it, you know? So. Fucking right. Yeah. Like just eradicate the bullshit. I love it. Yeah. That's, um, that was the most succinct way. I, that's, that'll just be the headline on my website now. Just eradicate the bullshit. Fucking right. Here to here uh, tagline. Let me, this, yeah. let me get a little bit of the royalty. Yeah, um, yeah. Within your nutrition world, I think one of the things that has become very popular that I've seen at least is people talking about peptides, this peptides, that, and it's like, everybody wants to skip the step of like, Oh, let's eat some fruits and vegetables. Let's mm -hmm. sleep. Let's stop consuming uh, you know, tons of alcohol. Let's stop putting sugar in our coffees. And they're like, I'm just going to take these fucking peptides and I'm going to be like, peptides are almost like the new, um, steroid new for lack of it. Right. Like, yeah. Um, and I think that as long as humans exist on this planet, there will always be something that people <laughs> are like, Oh shit, we found it right in nutrition and first it was like amino acids you remember that everybody was like doing bcaa's right it was just like expensive piss right that's what amino acids is it is just like super expensive piss and then you know you had like like greens were big for a while because like god forbid you eat a fucking vegetable and then like you felt like crap because you weren't you you didn't have collagen you know so obviously you need that and then, you know, you got people who work out twice a week for 20 minutes taking like glutamine, like there's always going to be something, right? Um, so my view on it is very much like yours, like the low hanging fruit, like you're worried about the top 0.5% and you're not even doing the bottom 10%. Like we're not even eating breakfast, my guy. Like we, you know, there is like room here, like there, there's a road in between where you're at in peptides, you know, and we need to, uh, we need to that first. So you remind me a ton of my former assistant, Kate. Um, again, shout out Kate, if you're listening down at VCU, actually, if you're in the area, you should, I mean, I don't know how close you are to, to VCU in Richmond, but, um, Kate was awesome. She was my go-to with everything nutrition, a hundred percent with the football team. And I think, from my standpoint, when I would always, def I'm like, hey, the guys ask me a question. I'm like, listen, I've told you, talk to Coach Kate. Like, I'm not just saying this to give myself less work. Like, she's really fucking good at this. Mm -hmm. um, and she would almost, you know, say the same thing to the athletes about, you know, wanting supplement this, supplement that. Do you feel like being a woman in a man's world, I'm not yeah, I'm no, fucking no. shout, I'm not being an asshole. I'm just no. putting it out there. But in, is yeah. it difficult being a woman being like, actually, you're just listening to your gym bro telling you you need this stuff when in reality, you don't like, no, cut the shit. Um, yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think that goes way wider than nutrition, right? I mean, it's especially doing what I do and being a strength coach, it exists in every piece of advice that I tell, you know, to a man in a lot of scenarios, right? Um, whether it's lifting, whether it's nutrition, anything like that. Um, 
but I mean, like I said, and it's funny that you mention, um, you know, your uh, the coach named Kate that was at, at VCU, which I'd love to connect with her. Um, I'm fortunate enough to actually have my own Kate, um, Kate Neese. She was a registered dietitian when we were at Purdue. She worked with the, um, uh, a couple of the teams that I worked with as well. And now she's, um, I, you know, she works in, in my business and, and helps my clients and consults with them and things like that. Um, so for me, um, I do deal with a lot of that, you know, kind of bullshit by myself, but at the same time, like I defer to the expert in those scenarios. So I'm very happy to like go over and make, you know, recommendations. And I do it with general population all the time, like in my in-person training, um, because a lot of the recommendations are low level, but, um, you know, when I, uh, give actual nutrition advice, um, it's, it's definitely a, Hey, like, let's talk to Kate about that. So, um, shout out to her, shout out to Kate niece, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's always going to be part of it. Um, I don't think we see it as much in the athlete climate of like guys, um, especially if they have a good, and I'm going to kind of say this very generally, but I firmly believe it. If you have a good head coach, right, and you're a guy, you listen to the people that tell you what to do, right? If you have a head coach that doesn't enforce a positive culture, then maybe you're a jackass to your female coaches, your female dietitians, your... But like it is either a requirement of you and your team to respect the professionals that are helping you or it is not, right? And I think it's as simple as that. And I hope you as like a male athlete would agree, right? I think, you know, in a good culture, in a good football culture, you know, were you allowed to be like, I'm not listening, you know, to this bitch, tell me what, like, no, your coach, I mean, especially like back in the day, like you, you'd be, you'd be on the line. It'd be some Herb Brooks miracle shit, you know, so. And I tell you what, too, one of the best things to, when you have a strong personality too, because like, again, the funniest part was when guys were like, oh, Coach Kate's mean. I'm like, no, you're just fucking soft because she would tell you like, that rep sucked, do it again. And like, oh, she's yelling at me. I'm like, no, we're in a weight room. She's projecting her voice. Like like trying to help you be better. At- yeah, exactly. And she also competed in powerlifting. So she'd be like, your glute bridge is pathetic. Let's add some weight. Like there's nothing more powerful than that. That, that was half the reason. It was like a personality, everything about her. I was like, we're hiring her. And then, yeah, so. Amen to that. And But I'll tell you what, too, though. Like you said, it, I, I remember that when I was working with softball. I was the only male in the room a lot of the time, too, with whether it was the whole team or coaches, athletic trainers. And it's like, okay, it is something, you know, you just take it with a grain of salt. But it, you're not training people differently because they're a female versus a male, let alone the fact that it's, you know, softball, baseball. We could talk about training the fact that 80% of it's all going to be the same. You're just aware of like, okay, this is a different population. I have to communicate differently, just like even with football. Like I don't talk to the offensive linemen the same way as I talk to the linebackers. And even within those big populations, you could have some redneck O-linemen and you could have some city boy O-linemen. Like it's never the same. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I touched on this when I was talking on the NSCA podcast as well. I think that's like you said, 80% of the exercises, 80% of that stuff is going to be the same. Your ability to like communicate effectively, which with each athlete, with different kind of athletes, that's what kind of, you know, sets you apart in coaching. So like you said, your colleague who worked VCU football as a female, like if she's good at her job and she can get through to those kids, then that's, you know, that's where she should be, you know? So. Show me the results. Um, what do you think has been the good and the bad of strength and conditioning, sports performance, whatever word you want to use? What's been the good, the bad, and the ugly in your opinion in the last, I don't know, however years? Just like overarching themes or what? Yeah, like 10,000 foot view of like, all right, hey, this is this is what, you know, you've seen over. I mean, you like you said, you bounce around a lot of high level places. Um, yeah, so, and, and we're talking like the profession as a whole, right? Or the profession, whether it be college, whether it be private, whether it be whatever, you know, cause you've, you've been in it and you've seen it, yeah. um, and you have a good business mindset. What if, what's the good, bad, the ugly? Um, the good is the longer I am in strength and conditioning, the more coaches I see that are there for the right reasons and they're um, to serve the athlete. So I definitely think that, um, and I'm not saying that this is a male versus female thing, but at the beginning it was very much just like a boys club and like you knew a guy that knew how to work out and he was the strength coach, you know what I mean? 
Um, and now it's people who genuinely, I mean, this is what you have to do is, is no joke. I'm not saying like we all went to med school and shit like that, but like we all, you know, we have master's degrees. We did unpaid internships. Like I, um, you know, I worked for free for a, a lot of time, right. To be able to do this. Um, so I think we're seeing an increase in the amount of people who really care about the profession and who really care about the kids. Um, and that includes more females, which I love because I think that um, females in, in coaching positions is, is super important um, all around, um, especially working with female athletes. Um, the bad, I guess, is, um, is, is the expectation, the lifestyle is not, is not congruent with the pay. Um, and I think it's unfair. I think it's really unfair, you know, for... And I understand athletic directors, you know, deserve to be paid a lot of money. Like they have a lot of experience, things like that. But it's really hard to buy into something, um, you know, where everybody at the top making hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars is like, hey, we're here for the team. We're here for the team. And you're like, I work 90 hours a week and I can't even get a fucking apartment because we're in a college town. So I like what team am I on? Because I, I need a room you know um but you know what i mean like it sounds ridiculous but especially um in like some of the assistant and associate positions like you can't you can't live on that you have to do something else and what time do you have to do anything else with either let me make no money and work 40 hours a week so that i could do something else on the side or pay me to work the amount that i work um so i think that's that's the bad piece of it um I mean, obviously, there's a lot more good and bad. And then the ugly, I think, would just be, um, I think it is tougher mentally, athletics as a whole, on a lot of people than a lot of people realize. Um, I think athletics is an environment that is really, has a lot of passionate people. Um, and I don't think people always know how to um, channel that passion in constructive ways, especially when you know, we're all running on three hours of sleep and nobody's eaten or worked out in a month and a half. You know what I mean? But it's just like this Petri dish of all these like angry, underpaid, really passionate people. And there needs to be, right? I, I don't think people understand how, um, you know, how charged it is in there, right? So I think that is the ugly because it's like you go into a weight room, you're expected to perform for these athletes, right? Like it is just... Like you have to be there, you have to bring it, you have to bring the energy, like your job is so performative. And then you go into a meeting and somebody's like, hey, uh, you're a dumbass. And you're like, well, I mean like shit, you know? Um, and, and this happens to to everybody, right? And it it's a cycle of who you work with and who you work for and things like that. Um, but there's just a lot of non-constructive activity happening under the surface. And I think that's why you see coaches that, you know, really love the kids and really love the field decide to leave because mentally like they they can't handle it anymore right <clears throat> double clicking on that for a minute is that why you think so many coaches are either going tactical high school or even just selling for you know various companies um yeah i think a lot of the coaches that i've talked to um and you know even kind of broadening that um to like athletic trainers or RDs because like I was talking about the RD earlier like she's very talented great at her job she's in tactical now um and I think because it's they cultivate the environment to be so high stress um and it's something that a lot of a lot of people don't want to deal with long term so I think absolutely um you know that's why you're kind of seeing this exodus a little bit I think that obviously in combination with the pay um, but just, I think that lifestyle, if you are committed to it and you're doing it and you're in it and you're like, Hey, I'm not cutting corners. I'm working the 80 hours. Like I'm there for the kids. Like after a while, it's going to eat you up. Right. Um, so I absolutely, I think that's, that's a big piece of it. <clears throat> going back to what you said about the good service, what does service mean to you and what does it look like? Um, for me in athletics, especially it was being having confidence that every decision I made was in the best interest of the athlete and trying to communicate that as effectively as I could to the athlete and the people around me. So I don't need the athlete to always like me because they won't. Um, but I do 
I do demand a firm understanding that like I am there for them, right? I'm there for them, you know, within the confines of the weight room, but also, you know, as somebody who respects them and wants to see them do well and cares about their physical and mental health. Um, so for me, that service portion was, you know, I can deal with all the other stuff. I can talk to the coaches, talk to the other, you know, whatever. Um, but I will never have to defend a decision that I made because it was not in the best interest of the athlete. Does that make sense? So that was kind of the basis that everything fell on um, and and everything else just kind of got figured out from there. Yeah, no, I mean, that's if that's your guiding light, like you said, everything else will just kind of fall in line, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, what is the best aha moment you've had in training people in strength and conditioning um, over the last, like, you know, actual X's and O's type stuff. Like what's the biggest thing that you've learned or the biggest change in your program? Because earlier on in the show, you talked about like, Hey, I don't want to keep doing SOS. So how has, you know, Jessica evolved over time? Um, I think in, from an X's and O's standpoint, um, the, I mean, the biggest, that's a really good question. I think when you're outside of it, um, it's easy It's easy to think it's more complicated than it is, right? So you're like interning and you're like reading the program and you're like, what the fuck is it? Like, why is he doing this? Like, you know, and really it's just like, well, we're goblet squatting because like these kids can't hold a barbell, right? That's why we're doing that, you know? Um, and so I think realizing that everything was like a lot simpler than I thought it was and realizing that nothing that I was doing had to be complicated for it to be effective. And the thing that I could do that was most effective for the athlete was actually uncomplicate everything. Um, and so, you know, my, uh, I started kind of stressing a lot less about my programming and stressing a lot more about the quality of movement that I was getting on the floor and the, um, like what I was seeing in the athletes in terms of paying attention to them, you know, at practice and the way they moved and while they did their sport and, you know, kind of, um, getting into it on that level versus being like, well, what if I did this, you know, single arm instead, like just, you know, the stuff that doesn't matter when we're dealing with kids that have a young training age, right? Especially females who do um, naturally a lot younger than guys because a lot of them haven't been exposed or haven't been exposed properly. Um, so I would, I would say that simplifying everything and putting my effort into, um, something that was actually going to make a difference. So like I said, ensuring like that quality of movement, energy in the weight room, and just creating a positive experience for the athlete versus sitting at my computer, you know, moving exercises around in an Excel sheet. Cause we've all done it for hundreds of hours. So I mean, taking a quick break from the show to talk to you guys about our sponsor team builder. If you have any online training platform needs, team builder is the go-to place. Team builder has the ability to integrate with velocity based training tools, they have the ability to program and have notes and videos for all of your athletes and your clients. This is your number one stop shop. Been using it since 2019 when I was working at Towson. So I've used it, love it. Make sure you check it out. Go ahead, click the link down in the description. And with that, let's get back to the show. We've all done it. So Do you feel like, <clears throat> so what you're almost saying is like the, uh, I forget who did the painting or the sculpture of Michelangelo, but it's like, I didn't create it. I just cut away everything that wasn't it. Is that kind of what you're alluding to here? Very much so. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I kind of realized, you know, you are a combination of a lot of like the better coaches that you've worked with, right? That's my coaching style. So, you know, there are coaches at Michigan that I got a lot of early experience with um, that really formed kind of how, how I coach and how I operate. Um, and, you know, there are also things that I saw that I'm like, why are they, why are they doing that? And that, you know, over time, and that's molded like how I, how I train. And I've found that the most effective um, result that I get is when I, I simplify it for the athlete. I take away all the intimidation. I take away the complication. Um, and we just focus on doing the simple things correctly and doing them often and doing them better than we did last week. So for you, what are kind of your KPIs then like that you need to see somebody do in order to progress them over time, whether it was when you were in college or now with your, um, online business and in person? You know, so the, obviously those are two very different things, right? Um, KPIs for me, and I think people talk a lot about these and there's so much like 
needless conversation around like what matters, right? What metrics matter for like these athletes, right? And we get into the nitty gritty and we're like, what tests can we do to see that our athletes are improving? Um, and for me, especially, and I'll kind of go off my example of female athletes, because that's a lot of the experience I've had. Um, and, you know, none of these are necessarily statistical or super complex, but a KPI for me is, you know, A, are we are we getting stronger in some way week to week? Obviously, right? You know, I, I go through these cards like crazy. I'm, you know, trying to make sure that everybody is at least putting in more effort week over week. But a KPI for me is quality of movement, right? Like if I see somebody who just starts to move better, especially not in the weight room, but doing what, you know, they're there to do. So playing lacrosse, doing gymnastics, um, I'm super happy with that. Uh, comfort in the weight room is a KPI for me, right? Having a positive experience in the weight room because the first thing that I know about 18 to 22 year olds is if they're not having a good time, they don't fucking care about you. They're not going to try like they, and they will let you know, right? So it's, you know, I'm not sitting there looking at these like, which I am, but I'm not obsessing over like Nordboard data and force plate metrics and saying, oh my God, like how are we? I'm like, hey, are we coming in here and putting in a quality effort? Are you moving well on the field? And I'm looking at all of that stuff behind the scenes, but I'm not going to judge the efficiency of my programming on, you know, 50 vertical jump numbers that I got, you know, throughout the season. Um, you know, if those things match up with how we intend them to with the periodization that we implement, that's fantastic, right? If we get more powerful, if we get stronger as we're coming up to season, which we should already, but that should be a side effect of all the other stuff we're doing, getting more comfortable in the weight room, getting more comfortable with movement and moving better on the field. Um, so kind of in the same vein as like simplifying things, I tried, I watched a lot of coaches get really caught up um, in the data and the numbers in like these KPIs that they insisted were direct correlations with performance on the field that just aren't. Like we cannot make those claims, right? But we can control our controllables, which is, hey, are we getting stronger over a given period of time? Um, and are we, is the weight room a positive environment? And is it having a positive impact on our sport performance on the way that we move on the field or, you know, in the gym or things like that? If that kind of makes sense, right? No, it does. And it's <clears throat> putting on the, you know, researcher hat. It's essentially being able to do qualitative research and quantitative because quantitative, everybody loves their different numbers and their spreadsheets. And you could essentially be able to talk to a coach about it versus, you know, more of like you just said, okay, hey, this is part and it's not the whole everything. It's they're here to lift because they have to, to help them be resilient on the field. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to put the message out there that that data is not important because it is right. No. Like, and you said that too. You were like, Hey, I'm looking yeah. at it behind the scenes. I'm just making sure that the main thing's the main thing that they're enjoying it. So that way we're getting, you're almost making sure that you're getting better data because the kids a competently move, they understand what they're doing. So now when you're looking at a max vertical jump, it actually is a max vertical jump. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad that came off. I wasn't like, uh, Nordboard, never heard of her. Um, I just, we just run on vibes in the weight room. <laughs> you know? You're like, we're just yeah. going to write it up on the whiteboard, whatever they're feeling. Yeah. Like, ah, uh, if the squad's tired, we're just going to shut them down for the day. Yeah. But you know, t like there, there is those two extremes where it's like, it, there are almost too many coaches that they're like, oh, okay, your HRV is down 3% and uh, okay, you're, and it's just like, man, I think the field's gone too far, even if it is your personal trainers, because you have more and more with these phones that can track this, track that, oh, you didn't sleep great, you have one nostril hair out of the way, and it's like, man, I mean. The you, whoop, you man, I mean, like the whoop is, is going to be like the demo. I even have like training clients that come to me and they come to work out and they're like, man, my recovery. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but we are still literally going to work out. So, um, I don't know if you expected it. Like, you know, I don't know what you're not an elite athlete, my guy, like you're, we're still going to work out. So I have a, so you brought it up. How do you feel about any of these different sleep trackers? Um, because I know what my opinion is and I want to hear what yours is. My opinion is, is that humans somehow functioned without it for so, so long. And I think that people are more intuitive 
with how they're sleeping, how much rest they're getting. And I think we have that information. And I think society has become obsessed with being presented with that information. So for me, if I have a college athlete that comes up to me and they're like, my sleep said I got an hour of restful sleep, but I slept till 11. I'm like, well, you also had 23 high noons yesterday and you were out until 3 a.m. So I believe it, right? We all know, like we know the environmental factors at play here, right? We understand what's going on conceptually. Um, sometimes I think it's good for certain athletes to see how poorly they're treating their bodies. But again, we get caught up in these numbers that we have been functioning with without for so long. And now they're just noise to a lot, you know, in most scenarios, I think, I don't know how you feel. You can. My, so, you know, because you're not a mind reader, I suppose I'm going to have to fill you in. Right. And everybody else listening here. Um, my opinion is, it's a data point. It's a data point. It starts a conversation, um, and it's it's a it's the screwdriver in your tool belt as a coach. And you have your Nord board, your hammer, and your vertical jump from whatever is your saw. It's a tool in the toolbox to help you have a conversation because, like you said, maybe Johnny or Jill had something really bad in their life happen, and now they can talk to you, and they're going to have uh, – they're going to feel better. They're going to connect on that human level and they're going to have a better training session. Um, I also think that whether it's a ring, a whoop, a watch, uh, the things that go on your bed, uh, I mean, how 100% accurate is that when you talk about compared to a lab? And then you want to talk about, okay, in a lab, you're sleeping on not your own bed, electrodes on your head. And it's like, yeah, like this is not your normal setting. So it's like, how even fucking accurate is that? Like, I mean, you can just wake up and you're like, yeah, you know what? I feel like back to the whole quantitative versus qualitative. Like, you know what? Like, I fucking slept really good last night. Like, I'm ready to go attack the day, right? Like, well, why Why is that not okay anymore? And, and something that people don't necessarily acknowledge about these devices is there is a um, – it's, it's not based on like the ideal data, it's based on your data, right? Yeah. So there is a window of time in which these devices have to learn your patterns, right? Which leaves a wider um, opportunity for inaccuracy, right? So, you know, we kind of whipped out the whoops and athletes started wearing them and stuff. And like day three, they're like, my recovery is at like 5%. Like what the, I'm like, you've been wearing this thing for three days. like. <laughs> Like, it doesn't know your life like that. Like, it's like, just, you know, pause. So I think people, you know, there's, um, they have to, it has to learn your body. Everybody's sleep patterns are different, right? The way that everybody moves through their sleep cycle is different. Um, the kind of triggers, the, um, biological triggers that, you know, activate these different zones for sleep and things like that. The thresholds are different on different people. You know, so I think people need to understand that it's not a perfect science. And like you said, it's a data point, right? It's a tool in the toolbox. Um, But I I feel like people have this ignorance as to how these things, these devices work, how they collect information, how they measure information. Um, And I think we need to remember that, you know, physiologically, everybody is very different. Um, And so have studies shown that the inaccuracy is, you know, not super statistically significant? Yes, in some cases. But, you know, what if you're at the top end of that spectrum um, and your data is extremely skewed? So, like I said, I think it's I think it's a data point. But, um, yeah, I think I think you summarized it, summarized it really well. And that's the other part, too, is like how clean of research are you actually going to get? Because it's like, OK, you can't do it in a lab with gen pop people. And then, like you said, you know what your athletes are doing on the weekend in the off season anyway. So it's like, yeah. what are you going to like, how, how are you going to really run a great research project? Because like you said, nine times out of 10, anybody running the research is being funded by somebody that wants certain that data to be coming at, out. You know, the company with the ring or the whoop or the, you know, Apple watch. Yeah. 100%. Uh, one of the last questions I have for you wrapping up here is you talked, like you said, you know, you mainly work with female athletes, um, lacrosse players as well. And there's, research out there and people have talked about it but how in your opinion my asking you how much of a factor is the wider hips cue angle thing in knee health for female athletes because to me i don't want it to be a cop in my opinion i don't think it's a cop out for people to say like oh well they're just more susceptible it's like well like what about just the you know sound principles of like let's extensively prepare the tissues before intensive and make sure we're hitting all the different vectors and like the different landing like i just 
again, it's almost like a data point, but it's like, don't just let that be your scapegoat crock of shit. So A, you're never going to completely isolate that variable, right? So all of the data that we have, you know, attributing the higher incidence of ACL tears in women because of the Q angle, things like that. There's, there's no isolation of that variable, right? We have never gone in and found a population that has been at, at this end of the Q angle spectrum. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we, there are so many factors that go into an ACL injury that we're never going to be able to completely control for that. And I think you ask a good question because I am willing to kind of say that I personally believe that any data collected on that in the past, you know, 20, 30 years, because that's realistically when data on women in sport started, you know, being collected in a, in a wide spectrum. Um, any data that we're collecting on that is really skewed from the sense that we have just now started to prepare female athletes for competition, right? Mm -hmm. So we have just, they have just started lifting. They have just started doing the same things that men have been doing for the last you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Like we just started, we just broke into that for the female athlete. So for me, when I hear like, oh, there's a higher incidence of ACL tears, like this is, you know, due to kind of the, you know, biology of a woman. From a physics standpoint, I 100% agree that intuitively it can make some level of sense, right? But I have to ask if that is enough, if that difference is statistically significant enough when we take into account that the average female athlete has not been strength training and has not been prepared for competition. So, and like I said, you're never really going to fully control for that variable, right? So can we see data maybe in 20 years from now that's over this 20 year period? Um, absolutely. But I think it's going to take time to catch up because I don't think that we're in a position to compare um, genders in sport in terms of injury because things have not been the same for the last 20 or 30 years. Does that kind of make sense? No, that's a, that's a great point. And like you just said, hey, is, do they have more ACL tears because they have the, the biological Q angle, as you said, or biomechanical? Um, or is it because they might be weaker because they haven't been exposed to strength training because nobody really cared about it when they were in high school and they have a super young training age? Like that's a... That's a great insight that I had never thought of before. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think the high school data can definitely be a little bit more relevant because you're working with a little bit more even of a play, playing field with the athlete because men still have a relatively low training age, um, you know, at that point as well. But I think, like I said, I think maybe in 20 years that data is going to be more significant because, you know, could it be a factor? 100%. Do I think it is? 100%. Is it as much of a factor as um, the data over the last 20, 30 years has shown? I don't believe so because I don't, you know, I think we're comparing apples to oranges at that point. Does that make sense? No, it does. Um, I appreciate having you on the show. Like not only, you know, whether guy or girl, but you have, uh, you definitely don't just go you're not one of those, you know, coaches, strength coaches. It's like, oh yeah, whatever anybody said, like you have the ability to critically think. Um, and I want to a, just commend you on that. Like we need more coaches in this field doing that because like you said, we are here to serve athletes. We're here to do what's best for the coaches um, or for the athletes. Like what had been the ability, like how, how have you always, have you always been like that? Or I'm just curious about that because we need, in my opinion, more coaches that have a mindset like that. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Right. Uh, I think that I got, I mean, I got a late start in this field and that I didn't go to undergrad for this. I didn't know I Same. was going to do this. Yeah. Neither um, did I. And so I think for a while I felt really intimidated by the field and I felt really insecure kind of talking about my opinion because I felt like, you know, I was not as experienced. I was not as seasoned. I was not um, and I think there's some validity to that, you know, like the shut up and listen thing is definitely key for a little bit. Um, but I will say that as I got more confident in the field, I uh, just started to question a lot of things. And oftentimes I'm wrong, right? But what it has done for me is it has given me the ability to explore topics on a deeper level than, than I would have explored, right? So I think I've always enjoyed thinking critically about things like that. Um, but I think it's a rather recent development because I, 
to be honest, I, I felt really out of place and self-conscious being in this field. You know, it's really hard to kind of have a master's degree and be like, do we, do any of us know what the fuck we're doing? You know, like, and I think that's a very real feeling, right? Um, so, so yeah, I think I've always been like that personality wise. Um, but I think kind of having to humble myself and, and be new in this field really pushed me over the edge. And I just wanted to learn as much as pos possible, question as much as possible. So. Oh, I think that's a great place to wrap up. I, uh, Kudos to you for that. I feel you on that too, though, because like I said, bachelor's degree in criminal justice. And then I felt like, oh shit, I got to just play catch up and shut up. And your opinion doesn't really matter because you haven't been doing it long enough. Um, for any of our listeners that made it this far, where can they follow you to continue to, you know, kind of see you on your journey and, and learn from you? Yeah. Awesome. So, um, I'm primarily on Instagram, um, coach J Burke, B U R K E. And then um, I'm on TikTok as well. I'm like trying to figure that out, but I don't know. I don't know how that's going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm on Instagram all the time. I love, um, I love it when, you know, new people connect, they say hi. I love kind of chatting with coaches, um, in the field and I encourage people to kind of reach out and, and chat. So. Yeah, I, uh, we're going to link to you down in the show notes. So if anybody wants to reach out to her, you go ahead and uh, on YouTube, you'll, you'll be able to have her stuff. But Jess, thank you very much and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much.